Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue in our series on Ruth, finding God in the disappointments and losses of life with a message entitled, From Famine to Fullness. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 2, verses 20 to 23 in our Bibles as we join Dr. Neufeld. When we last studied the book of Ruth, we were tracking the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. While we acknowledged the reality of the losses these two women faced, we saw an incredible beacon of hope. Both women had lost their husbands. Naomi had lost her ancestral property and she was destitute. Ruth had given up her culture and entered a land where she might well have been despised. After all, she was a Moabite, a people of a pagan god, with less than an ideal history. But she had come to the true and living God and had entrusted her future into the hands of God, or as Boaz put it, she had taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. In the meantime, the two women had found kindness from a man named Boaz who had not only allowed Ruth to glean in his fields, but had offered Ruth and her mother-in-law enough food and provisions to take care of them for a year. When we left off, we heard Naomi reveal a very important little bit of information regarding Boaz. She said, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. It's possible for the contemporary reader to miss the entire point of this book, which an ancient Jew would have seen in a second. The Hebrew word is goel, and in some translations, this is translated as kinsman redeemer. This man is one of our kinsman redeemers. In the Old Testament, this is an individual, always a relative, who would purchase redemption, that is, he would pay the price required to make matters right after they had gone horribly wrong. But what kind of things are we talking about? According to the Old Testament, there are a number of areas. We're going to look at three of them. First, the Old Testament realized the need for redemption for those people who had been harmed by a crime. In cases of capital crime, that is, in the case of murder, the Old Testament mandated the death penalty. Furthermore, the Old Testament in Numbers 35 called for someone described as the avenger of blood who himself was to put the murderer to death. The idea being that even if everyone else forgets the harm that the murderer has done and the victim was poor and no one was there to hear his call for justice, the avenger of blood hears. And any murder done, no matter to whom, will be avenged. The avenger is almost always a relative of the murdered person. But of course, people are not only harmed by crimes of murder, they are harmed by acts of vandalism, theft, and other kinds of loss of property. Again, things needed to be made right. Numbers 5 speaks of the need of a wrongdoer to repay the victim and then add one-fifth to the valuation of what was lost. In this case, the next of kin will collect the fine. In cases of redemption for people harmed because of crime, the Redeemer, the one who sets matters right, is always there at the call for justice. In order to get justice, one needed a Redeemer. But there's a second place where a redeemer was called for. This was in the case of those who had lost money that reduced them to poverty. While it was true that no Israelite was permitted to enslave a fellow Israelite, it was also true that an Israelite might become enslaved to a foreigner. He would have entered into indebtedness, been unable to pay, and therefore because there was no bankruptcy protection, they would be reduced to slavery. In that case, according to Leviticus 25, one of the enslaved man's brothers or a close relative could redeem him. That is, they would pay the price of the debt and set the kinsman free. That would be a kinsman redeemer. 
But there's more. Leviticus 25 verse 25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. In this way, Israel was being taught that they really were their brother's keeper. That's what a kinsman would do. But there was a third kind of redemption. It was in the case of the loss of land. As we should be aware, in an agricultural society, the person without land had no means of making an income. Therefore, land ownership was often basic to making a living. And as we have seen, because it would appear that Elimelech, the dead husband of Naomi, had lost his land during a period of famine after his death, Naomi was reduced to poverty without any hope for the future. And whereas it might seem that Boaz was willing to help the two widows with food, they would always be beholden to him. That was no future. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea of land ownership was quite different than it is, for instance, in our country. Leviticus 25 verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, the Old Testament did not have the idea of private land ownership, nor of government ownership of land either. So who owned the land? Well, the answer, God did. No human being could own any land at all, for it was thought that all land belonged to God because he created it, and he has never relinquished his right to it. Now, during the days of Joshua, when Israel came to the promised land, that land was divided out among the 12 tribes as an inheritance, and each tribal territory was divided out among clans and then at families. Whatever land you inherited was yours in perpetuity. But what if you made bad financial decisions or some other matter caused you to need to sell off the land? Well, you couldn't sell your land because technically it wasn't yours. It was God's land. But God had entrusted its care into your hands. And if you didn't have good financial skills, you could sell the land God had entrusted to you, but only kind of, that is, only until the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year was called the year of Jubilee, in which all land was returned back to the original party. So if you bought land in ancient Israel, all you did was lease it for as many years as were left until the Jubilee. Then at the year of Jubilee, all land reverted back to the original owner. This was a way of ensuring that no family became impoverished. But let's assume for a moment that there were, let's say, 35 years left until the Jubilee. What would then you do? Well, you might not live another 35 years, and so you would die in poverty, or would you? Well, you had sold your land in order to survive, and you needed land in order to make money. And how would you get that back again? Well, this most likely was Naomi's problem. She had land in her husband's family name, which her husband Elimelech had sold during the famine. She needed to find a way to buy it back. That was her legal right. No seller could refuse her, but she had no means to buy it or, in biblical terms, redeem it. She might die long before the lease ran out. Furthermore, because she had no family, the land would go back into other hands. So she had a problem. But an instant, when Ruth came back with a sack of grain, Naomi saw the solution, a solution she knew about, but which she didn't have the courage to hope for. After all, she thought that she was cursed by God. What good could happen to her? But that bag of grain Ruth brought home on the first day of gleaning changed everything. Boaz could be their kinsman redeemer. Why? Well, listen to what the law said. 
It said, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he had not had sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. Now that was the law. Was it possible that Boaz, who had already shown such kindness to Ruth, would actually step to the plate and redeem lost property for Naomi? He didn't have to, but this sack of grain said it might be possible. Here, no doubt, was Naomi's question. Just how generous was God? You see, was God's grace so generous, so overflowing, that he would redeem, that is, take past failures and tragedies and buy them back, pay the price, and make things right? As it will become quite clear, Naomi's mind is now working in overdrive. We've already seen that she is aware of the law concerning marriage called the Liverite marriage. Deuteronomy tells us that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife. Now, in the case of Ruth, her husband's brother was dead as well, but Naomi wondered, if Boaz was willing to marry Ruth, well, that would change everything. The duty of marriage would fall on the same Redeemer as the one who purchased the land for the dead man's family. Imagine Naomi's thinking. She who had become barren would again be full. She'd have a family and a son for her daughter-in-law and a means of support, something that when she woke that very morning seemed impossible. But this evening, when Ruth came back with a sack of grain and with the news of Boaz's kindness, the impossible now suddenly seemed possible. In spite of all her losses, things could be made right. If their Redeemer stepped forward, Naomi would gain her land back and she would grow old holding grandchildren in her lap. And when we come back, we will see how this story relates to the story of everyone who hopes in Christ. As we can see from this introduction, the role of kinsman redeemer in ancient Israel was no small part. In the case of Ruth and Naomi, the presence of such a person would determine how they and their families would survive at the most basic of levels. And so, with the actions of Boaz, there is a real turning point to the story. Will he be their redeemer? When we come back, we'll see how this very theme is a direct foreshadow of what Christ's role played in our redemption. We've said a lot about this incredible journey to Greece and all the sites and locations that we'll be visiting. But in case there was any question about the focus of this journey, it's about knowing our Lord better. It's about taking the time to enter into His Word, being refreshed in His Spirit, and to worship Him. If you'd like to consider joining us and a small group of friends for our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour, you can get more information by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca. Space is limited, so check it out today. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. It is impossible to speak about the idea of a kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth without noticing the parallels of this account to the entire biblical story. All of us have sold our inheritance. 
Do you remember the account of Esau, how he sold away his birthright? Well, as children of Adam, we've all sold our birthright, that which was rightfully ours, our task of ruling over the entire creation on behalf of God, of owning this earth with its resources on his behalf, has been lost in the fall. We've traded our riches given from God for poverty. We've now inherited sin and death and judgment from the law of God and held boot. In reality, and let me press this, the sufferings of this present world can simply be an introduction to the eternal sufferings in a world to come. You see, sin in the world and sin in us is a one-way street. It is the street of suffering and loss and of agonizing grief. But isn't this the heart of the gospel? Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This doesn't mean that we are put back into the Garden of Eden. It means rather that having rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom where sin, death, and hell reigns, Jesus paid the price to make things right. And not only so, what we inherit in Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is so much more than what Adam originally had. So what do I have? Well, as a Christian, I can say, I have a strong redeemer. His name is Jesus. And I know that he will buy back all that was lost. Sometimes Christians will argue about the issue of physical healing. If sickness is a result of sin in the fall, why is it that Christians still get sick after they have been redeemed? Why do we all die? Why is there still so much injury among believers? And the Bible presents us with many answers to these questions, but no matter how we process them, I know this, I will one day be healed of all sicknesses. All those things that have been lost in the fall will be redeemed. My Redeemer has paid a great cost so that I am restored. He will buy back that which was lost, but he will also restore what sin has destroyed. That's why we can be a restorative community today. I know that we can't fix every broken marriage, every divided relationship, every church racked by sin, and every effect of sin. But I know one who offers grace and healing, knowing in the end all will be redeemed. And with a hope of redemption, Ruth speaks up. Verse 21 says, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished the harvest. In other words, she has reason to go back to work the next morning, and she has reason to keep hoping. The day before, Naomi had simply consented for Ruth to go to glean, but now she enthusiastically endorses it. Listen to verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. In other words, keep going out. He'll protect you. And then, she is even then too afraid to say what is surely on her mind. But what else will God yet do? She's catching a glimpse of a lavish God. Verse 23 in, in this context is a very important verse. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And so for the next seven weeks, for six days a week, Ruth would get up early and go to work. The work would have been hard, the days would have been long, and each evening she would have come home. For a time, nothing more seemed to happen. The story of the blossoming love between Ruth and Boaz would occur sometime during the end of those seven weeks, but not immediately. We are led to believe that in some way life got back to normal, kind of the way that many of us experience it. 
getting up in the morning and going to work or going off to class, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, getting the kids out of bed, and well, all the normal things that make up our day. See, in many ways, those of us who have a Redeemer are like everyone else. We have jobs, they have jobs. We get sick, they get sick. We have moments of great successes, and we treasure those, and moments of failures just like everyone else. We know what it is to have much, and we know what it is to have little. And when we suffer, the pain is not somehow reduced in those of us who know Christ. We go through those things that are the common lot of all humanity. But that's where the difference ends. Because I know that I have a Redeemer. I do not suffer loss in the same way. I may lose my health or may lose my wealth. I may lose dear friends. I may even see loved ones taken by death. I may even suffer because of my own foolish sins. But this I know, nothing that has been lost will not be redeemed. I have said that I know I have a Redeemer, and because of this, I have hope in the present hour. I can carry on with enthusiasm. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian-born Jewish neurologist. He was a psychiatrist and a brilliant philosopher and an author as well. He was also a survivor of the Holocaust. And in his very famous book entitled Man's Search for Meaning, he argued that loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect on what it means to be human. As a result of his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp, Frankl contended that when a man those in the concentration camps no longer had a motive to keep on living, no good future to look forward to. He saw in the camps that a man would simply curl up in the corner and die. He wrote, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. He needed something to look forward to. He needed to believe that something good was on the horizon. Once you realize that, you'll see that That's what keeps everyone going. Here's what many people do. Maybe you're one of them. You construct your own goals. You determine that you're going to accomplish something. And failing that, some of us determine that we're going to live our lives vicariously through others. We're going to live for our children or we'll become the adoring fan of someone that we wish we were. You see what's wrong with all of these things? They can and will all be taken away. You will suffer loss. For many, the very thing that propels them on is false hope. There's an old saying that says, probably nothing in the world arouses more false hope than the first four hours of a diet. Yes, and that's kind of funny and it's kind of sad in the same way. But every hope that's not built on certainty is bound to perish. That's why those of us who say, Jesus is my redeemer, have a hope, a genuine hope, which cannot be taken away. I have hope real hope, and real purpose in the present hour. For all that has been lost will be redeemed. I can carry on with enthusiasm, even when things are difficult or boringly mundane, because I know that the future is my friend. I've wanted to talk about going from famine to fullness. Two destitute women become enriched by God and enter into the line of the Messiah. And even though not all experience fullness on earth. In Christ, our Redeemer, our eternal expectation is one of richness that cannot be taken away. I know this about people who are filled with faith. They're strong. In fact, let me add that those who have true faith are the very toughest people on the earth, for they can withstand even the most savage loss that would devastate 
anyone else. They believe that the very best days they have ever had are definitely not behind them, but ahead of them. And for that reason, despair and hopelessness and a loss of courage are banished with the words, Jesus is my Redeemer. Whatever I have lost cannot be as significant as I once thought. For I know that in Him I can face the future with confidence. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of those who have courage in the present hour. I pray that we would continue to be propelled on by looking into the face of Jesus, our Redeemer, knowing that He restores and He makes whole. Thank you, O Lord God, that our best days are still ahead. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. John, what a great message and story of redemption. And you spent quite a bit of time today helping us unpack the whole idea of kinsman redeemer and what that really meant. But for those of us that are a little bit slower like me, can you sort of put that in a nutshell that I can take away with me? Yeah, I know it's a, it's a large concept, but I think it can be put into two categories. One is the kinsman redeemer helps when injustice has been done, and the other, the kinsman helps when there is a need for mercy. So many of us have done things wrong, and in the case of the Old Testament, it was the issue of improper use of your own land, and you didn't handle your finances well, and a kinsman would step forward and buy back that which you've lost. You know, in some ways, we can see that in terms of our own relationship to sin. Uh, Christ takes our own stupid things that we've done, if you put it that way, and he buys them back, and he says, I'm going to redeem that which you've wrecked. So mercy always is at the center of what the kinsman-redeemer concept is all about. We need mercy, and a kinsman will step forward and at his own cost. And that's really at the issue here. And that is the kinsman has to pay that price. He will incur loss for the sake of those who have uh, suffered loss. And that's what Christ does. What a merciful and gracious God we have. Thanks, John, so much for today's message. And we look forward to tomorrow again as we look back into the book of Ruth right here on Back to the Bible Canada. This picture of Christ the Redeemer is one that we'll all need to grasp and be reminded of as we live life in a fallen world. No matter what happens, we will ultimately lose everything, even those we love. But we have this, the promise of God being with us forever and restoring all things. I hope that today's study has given you much hope and encouragement to keep you moving forward in your walk with Christ and to recognize those areas where we have all perhaps failed to apply this truth in our own lives. Join us tomorrow for our final message in week two of Ruth with Dr. John Newfeld. Opportunity is running short if you're still considering hosting the Laugh Again Christmas Tour in your church and community this year. The Laugh Again Christmas Tour features the humor and storytelling of Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway and the award-winning music of instrumentalist Jay Calder. It takes place from November 27th to December 8th, and there are just a few spots left for your church to join us as a host. So if you're looking for something unique, 
an excellent Christmas event that will encourage your church family and engage your community at large, well, you'll want to secure your opportunity today. For more information on becoming a host this Christmas season for the Laugh Again Christmas Tour, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or check out our tour online at laughagain.ca.